This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Deboat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Topps Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, coming up on today's show, uh, Dave Debo is going to talk with the uh, members of the local Muslim community about efforts to assist victims and their families after the May 14th mass shooting at uh, the Tops on Jefferson Avenue. Also, we're going to hear about critical race theory. Bridget Jaipal Valenza with that coming up later on. But right now, we're joined by Renee Pettis-Jones, president of the National Federation for Just Communities of Western New York. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, for joining us here. Uh, just going through your website and seeing actually your, your Facebook page. Interesting. Uh, you have a, a nice appeal that you put out there, a little video appeal, and you talk about how wounds have been open or reopened, actually, yes. by this tragedy. Expand on that, the wounds that have been reopened. Because what we are trying to highlight is that these problems existed for many, many years. This is something that just came to a real critical head with this act of violence. But the, the pain the community has been feeling, the pain that black people in general have been suffering under, is nothing new. So when these incidences happen, especially when there are instances of violence like this, particularly hate crimes, those wounds are wide open at this point. So we're raw and we're very sore and numb. Uh, we look at those wounds then. Uh, <laughs> there's a long, long history, of course, of that. At the same time, the healing process through the years, was there progress being made? How far have we stepped back? You know, we have made some progress. So, you know, it's it feels like we haven't gone very far because when you look at it in terms of the systems, a lot of those systems still exist. We have a long way to go, needless to say. But we have definitely made strides and we've changed. We've morphed along the way. We've talked about, you know, our history, where we were. Are we feeling as if we're different than back in the 60s or back in the 40s? And when you go back historically, you can see that there's this ebb and flow of energy. And where are we in that continuum at this point? So it's very critical for us to, first of all, look back to see what has happened before, look at the template for what's been going on, and figure out what can we do to keep this momentum of human rights you know, beyond just civil rights, human rights, moving forward to protect all of us. When we talked yesterday a little bit, uh, you, uh, we talked about, is it better, are race relations better now than they were, let's say, in the 60s compared to today? And you said they're different and complicated. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of those complexities then. You know, we have layers of, of misinformation, disinformation that we have to look at. 
people are feeding us information in a different way than what we had back, say, in the 60s and 70s, and we're absorbing it a little differently. You know, you're talking newspapers, word of mouth. This is social media that's instantaneous. People are being fed things that are just hateful and not questioning it because it seems that the more that it's said, that it's somehow right. So I think what we're seeing now is that we've got an extra layer of complexity that we have to overlook here and and figure out how can we bridge those divides where people are talking about things that just don't exist. You look at what uh, this alleged killer was consuming in terms of information and all that hate. It's unbelievable really to hear that that exists, but obviously it does. At the same time, we know the black community, there's anger there, but it, it's it been, from what I've seen, kept very much subdued and under control. Yeah. Is that what you're hearing from, from uh, members of the community? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, well, let's put it this way. The anger is there because, of course, it, the pain is there. So we've got to still get through these processes, and I don't think many people have gotten out of those stages. If we talk about stages of trauma, stages of grief, they're still in those beginning processing stages because we haven't even hit that one-month mark yet. So a lot of this is still starting to soak in the, 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 the deep complexities of what has happened. The long term, looking down the road, what's next? Just as you're talking about right. here, what's next? It's hard to, to, to look that far down when you're still hurting. So I think people still have to understand that we're still processing, and this will take time. And yeah, we are seeing some, some, you know, control in terms of, you know, their emotions. But outrage, I'm not so sure that we would have expected that kind of outrage. Or is that something that through social media or through other events, we might have been fed to expect that outrage? People have human nature things that they just get angry, but that doesn't mean that they go out and start firebombing and retaliating. That's not necessarily part of that whole issue. We're part of a human race. People have stereotyped too often. And I think that's what you might be be feeding into in terms of saying, you know, this is that stereotype that people were talking about of the expectation of what could happen. It's just interesting that the, the, there might be two stereotypes kind of playing in the opposite direction exactly. right now, right? Exactly. You have this white man who, for whatever reason, living in the southern tier of New York State, targets this community right here. And then this community responds in this in this fashion, absolutely, absolutely, and and that's that's it because we expect and generalize, and unfortunately, I think you know, being from the southern tier, we don't know what is being talk, talked about in the communities. Do they see people that look like me, for example, walking through their communities? Do they have those interactions? So are those stereotypes being perpetuated? Are they being fed? Are they being fueled? And what it's up to us to do is to counter that. Make sure that people educate themselves interact, feel comfortable interacting with one another, and learn more about cultures that may not be their own. You know, Renee, of course, you know, the National Federation for Just Communities, I mean, that's what it's all about for you is to have those conversations and try to keep them coming. But at the same time, are there enough of the conversations, like you said, where people in different sections of the city or the suburbs here are seeing enough well, people, like you said, that look like you, right. is it are there enough of those interactions going on? Do we have more of that to do? We do. Uh, unfortunately, you know, people feel comfortable with those that look like them. 
that's human nature. We understand that. So what we've got to actively do is get people out of that comfort zone, out of those silos, and starting to interact with one another. That is a little more complex because, again, that takes you into driving into neighborhoods and zip codes that you may not be familiar with. Right. And if you're not comfortable with that, are you going to do it? Not likely. So we've got to present opportunities for people to cross those divides, particularly those zip code divides, and make sure that we bridge some of those gaps in between. Right. And just to make sure that we understand each other, I talked about the idea that this young man allegedly drove all the way from near Binghamton to here with his brand of racism and, and hate. But that racism exists here, right? It does. It does. We were labeled as one of the segregated communities in the country for a reason. And what we can't do is turn a blind eye to that history that unfortunately Buffalo has to reckon with. We've got to do better for ourselves, our community, our next generation is dependent on this. So it is going to be incumbent upon us to, first of all, acknowledge that racism existed here. It exists in businesses, in systems, but also prejudice, which are those feelings that people bring to their racist activity. We've got to talk about how do we break down that discrimination, those prejudice, those stereotypes that led to those prejudice. We're kind of in, like you said, we're in that emergency mode right now where we're, everybody's just responding to May 14th, and hopefully that response continues for some time to come. At the same time, what about strategies to combat that racism as you mentioned, this has been your work, your organization's work for a while, but now maybe it, it's taking on a different different tone. Or I guess maybe is it are, is there a utilization of this moment and of this emotion that we have right now that the time is now to to spark and to to have these conversations? Yes, there is a sense of urgency right now. We have to, first of all, heal our community and absorb the pain that we are experiencing. So once we stabilize in that position, then we've got to move forward. We've got to talk about the uncomfortable things. What was it about this community that was so highlighted as being one of the segregated communities in, in the United States? What can we actively do to start breaking down those barriers. And again, it, it, I go down to those zip codes. I mean, people just don't cross into other communities that don't look like them. So how do we now start not talking about just the east side or the west side or the north side, but talk about strategically parts of Buffalo? They're all parts of Buffalo. They don't necessarily represent just one thing or another. So, you know, our organization's been around for over 70 years. And unfortunately, I feel that we'll be around for a lot longer than that because this is nothing new. This is something that we've had to deal with, but we haven't. We haven't confronted it in its ugliness. And this is the ramification of what we've got to do moving forward. Right. And, you know, you kind of lead right into the, the, the follow-up question there, and that is just the idea that, yeah, we've had – a lot of these types of moments here in Western yeah. New York throughout these time, nothing exactly. quite like yes. this. Yes, yes. Still, the, those opportunities have been missed. What, what, how can we reflect on what has been missed and what lessons can we take moving forward? Well, for one thing, we have to acknowledge that they happened. A lot of times these kind of instances go underreported or not talked about. And then, you know, you see it for a blip in the second in the news headlines and it's gone. This is something that is long-lasting, that it's going to impact our community for generations to come. We've got youth, we've got adults, we've got seniors, we've got 
everyone in our community that was impacted. So we've got to look systematically at what can we do to start breaking down those stereotypes, start breaking down those divides, those geographical divides, those economic divides. We've got to start investing in each other and our social constructs to try to build our community rather than try to allow this to be our defining moment to separate us. Renee Pettis-Jones is the president of the National Federation for Just Communities of Western New York. Um, We talked actually just before we went on the air, you brought up a really interesting point about safety of your staff right off the bat was the first concern. Elaborate on that because that's something that really I think needs to be focused on, that there is a lot of fear still existing and probably isn't going to go away anytime soon. No, unfortunately not. And what we looked at is one of the stats from the Washington Post for a couple of weeks ago, and I can only imagine those numbers are probably sticking around the same, that 75% of black Americans fear a racist attack against themselves or a family member or a friend. 75% of all black Americans. That number is so extraordinary because we're not talking about just in a specific community. That's across the board. So all of us are looking deeper in ourselves. We're looking behind ourselves as we're walking down streets. We're wondering, is that friend or foe? You know, so staff, of course, just going back to that question about staff. Staff is important. Businesses now need to understand that they have to take care of their staff. You know, we've, we're part of a national affiliation and we talked about whether or not there should be trauma days built into. We've got sick days, personal days. What about trauma days? And just the thought that at this point in our time in history, that we may need to talk about the trauma that impacts us all. And as we know, it ebbs and flows. Some days may be good days. Other days may not be such good days. So when we're talking about bringing that trauma into the workplace, we've got to recognize that just because someone may not live in a particular zip code doesn't mean that they weren't impacted by this because they could very well have been. What have you heard from staff members about that? Have you heard people just say, I can't get this out of my mind? It's it's affecting me in various ways? Yes, absolutely, because there's triggers. Every time we hear something else happening across the country or even in our own community, that's enough to trigger you. Of course, Uvalde happening so very quickly after Buffalo That was a major trigger because, of course, we're talking about a mass incident. We're talking about kids. We're talking about, again, the stereotypes that could come in with this. So self-care is important. We want to make sure that our staff internally, our facilitators, take care of themselves because they'll be no good to the community if they don't. For those that need to reach out, there are a lot of resources out there. There's mental health resources throughout the state, throughout the county, and locally. Make sure people reach out to those groups to talk about some of these issues. And you have uh, resources at at your website as well, right? Absolutely. Follow us on our social sites. We put a lot of that updated information there. Okay. And and, uh, the website is what? Uh, NF jcwny.org? That's correct. Okay, I got yes. that one right. That's yes. for sure. Uh, racial healing. Yes. A little, we'll talk a little bit about that in healing circles. You've got one coming up that's uh, for youth. Exactly. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, how perhaps somebody um, could get involved. Take a look at our website, of course, to register. But this was an opportunity. We had a, a racial healing circle that was supposed to have happened just before the tragedy. We had to put the pause on it because we needed our communities to really respond. And we were numb. 
So once we got past that numbness, we realized, okay, we've got to get into action. We've got to create that dynamic where kids can come in and talk about what they're feeling as it relates to race relations, because kids are not immune to all of this. They're a part of these conversations. So we created this specific youth racial healing racial conversation just for them to be able to come in and talk with us virtually. That way, anybody from any place can log in geographically and share their thoughts and ideas. Okay, so it's a, basically a large Zoom kind it of is. a... Okay. It is, yeah. We've session. done a really good job with trying to find that new virtual platform right. that we're working in, but just bringing people into the dialogue, just sharing that their moments together. There's something really cathartic about that when you see someone else who actually is moved just the way that you are that you may not have known about. Just having that opportunity to bring adults, kids, youth together to have conversation. Another conversation that we had a little bit about talking about how times have changed and such, um, and you brought it in, uh, this this article from uh, 1959, uh, that of, of your father uh, being the first black bank teller. Yes. Now, it's 1959, which for some people sounds a long, long time ago. If you were born two <laughs> years after that, like I was, it doesn't seem quite as long. But it is amazing that there was a time where that was notable. Exactly. Exactly. And that, again, is that history. When you go backwards and you look and say, wow, 1959, that was the first black bank teller in Buffalo? That seems incomprehensible at this point, because obviously we've gone so far from there. But yet, have we? And here again, we talk about those systems of belonging. Do we have companies and businesses that still make their marginalized communities feel like they're not welcomed in those businesses? So those are the kind of things that, again, the NFJC wants to help bridge and talk about because we want to have people feel like they belong, that they're a part of a community, a part of one Buffalo community. And of course, we're talking about what's next Buffalo. And in just about a minute, I want you to solve the world's problem. <laughs> no, but uh, what about that? What would you like to see in the immediate future that you think would be a progressive step, an important step in taking this energy of a of empathy that we have right now and using it for the good. I think you just nailed it. We need to talk about our feelings in an empathetic way. I would love to talk about love more than hate. We know where this came from. We've got to do a better job of drowning out those sounds and those drums of hate. We've got to talk about how we can bridge and be together. We can be one community if we understand each other, if we talk to each other like we're doing now, if we just respect each other. So I really want to try to emphasize that that we can come over this. We've just got to stick together and work again as a community. It was a pleasure talking with you, Renee. Thank you for having me. Renee Pettis-Jones is president of the National Federation for Just Communities of Western New York, and you are listening to Buffalo, What's Next? Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. Hey, we used to love this song. We still do. 
but we used to too. WBFO The Bridge, college radio for adults. Check us out on the TuneIn app or on your smart speakers and, of course, wbfo.org slash the bridge. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on our app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. And this is Dave Debo. Mohammed Sharif is with us from Jami Masjid. It's an Islamic mosque on Genesee Street over in the Schiller Park neighborhood, about two and a half miles from the shooting scene. They have been involved with relief efforts, uh, hosting a fundraiser for the victims' families. And if we are talking broadly about the East Side community as a whole, and if we are talking broadly about the lack of investment on the East Side, perhaps the mosque can be a little bit of an object lesson for us. We're talking about community organizing today and development and hearing from one of the members of that mosque to help out flesh out the, the entire discussion about the East Side with a new voice. So with that in mind, Mohammed, welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Glad to do it. A lot of our discussion so far on the program has dealt with the inequity, uh, an imbalance of services, segregation. Uh, 85% of the people who identify as black within the Buffalo are east of Main Street. Mm -hmm. Is the same sort of segregation something that the Islamic community faces? Uh, while I know there are mosques um, outside the city, mm -hmm. I'm guessing most of them within the city are on the east side. Am I right? There are many, many mosques now on the east side of Buffalo, but I think our community is uh, especially unique because we have a um, huge diversity of both African-American congregants from the east side, and also uh, we have a lot of immigrants and a lot of people from different cultures that come in and pray with us. So since the beginning, since we founded ourselves, we always viewed ourselves as a very diverse coalition of people, especially people that are native to the east side and, and not necessarily just transplanted there. Is it because you want to be in the community where your people are, or is this another example of segregation on the east side? Well, I, I, I don't know that if it, the mosque necessarily is an example of segregation on the east side, but certainly there is an effect from the segregation in that the people that live around us are generally people that are black, and, and it's a black community. And because our mosque is in the black community, uh, we've decided to take an approach of, of building and supporting that community rather than trying to displace that community and, you know, talking about things like gentrification, we thought maybe you'd take a different approach. And so for the last few years, our, what our community has been doing, what our mosque has been doing is reaching out to our neighbors and what we call our circle of influence, our sphere of influence, which we define as 40 neighbors on each side of the mosque. So what we do is we, we do programs for, for those neighbors. We reach out to those neighbors. We check up on those neighbors personally to see how they're doing. And um, that that is sort of how we try to build our support and our community and make it one community and not necessarily an Islamic community, but just another pillar in the in the community, just another foundational element in the community. So when we talk about the neighborhood, this is not some other neighborhood. You guys are there too. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Talk about the fundraiser for families. I imagine it sprang from that same sort of motivation. Yeah. So we've been doing work in the community for uh, nearly a decade now. And that includes things like, you know, barbecues and we do these things called giveaways. So we've been working in the community for quite some time. So when this 
you know, short shooting happened. It wasn't something that was we didn't have to think about about do we need to do a fundraiser. It was more like we were thinking about our own congregants that go to the to the tops market. You know, one of our um, youth that attends the mosque, his mother and his sister were both in in the market at the same time. So this was not something that was just on the news first. This was something that was very personal for us. And many of our congregants shop at that tops market. So really, we were thinking about the people that come and pray at our mosque and the people that are in our community. And that's why we held that fundraiser for them. And one of the things that we've heard back from a lot of the the victims' families that we've reached out to is that um, they actually haven't received any of the funds from other fundraisers, but they're really counting on us because they know us and and they know that this is someone that they can rely on to to come through for them. And that's the relationship that we've built over the past decade. If it's something you can't share, that's fine. But how much did you make? We've raised about $25,000, which was about our goal. So we hit our goal, and uh, we're planning on distributing those funds very soon, very personally as well. Tell me a little bit more about the mosque, though. Beyond the the community work you just spoke of, Mm -hmm. um, there's nightly security walks, there's Mm -hmm. a community garden, there's Mm -hmm. a playground. There's a lot more than a place for people to worship. Yeah, when people look at, you know, a community center, when people look at a mosque, they want more to come out of it than just a place that you can go and worship. You know, they want a place where they can feel safe, where their kids can feel safe. And that's what we've been working for starting, you know, I think five or six years ago at this point, we built uh, a state-of-the-art playground in, in on our property. And, you know, at that time, we weren't doing it just for the people that come to the mosque. And now it's shared by everyone in the community. All of our neighbors, they come and they spend time on it. We have the only basketball court on the east side in, in the Schiller Park park area and we get 50 60 youth there every day you know maybe only two or three of them are muslim so they're coming and and they're taking part in our facilities and there's nothing asked of them and we're not asking anything of them but it builds this understanding that this is a safe place that we can go to and like you mentioned the security walks that's the reason we do that we're not trying to establish some sort of like like super policing, you know, punitive measures on the community, but we just want to make sure everyone's safe. So we walk around the area at night, we see how's everyone doing, and there's so many times where we've come into someone who's like, you know what, I've got no heat tonight, and we we get them a heater or something like that, and and it's how we develop these personal one-on-one relationships with our, our immediate neighbors, and that's how we build our community. On the program the other day, we had Jillian Hainsworth in here. She's the Poet Laureate of Buffalo. And uh, we touched only briefly on Mm -hmm. policing, and she said maybe it is time to look at a different model than a government policing system. Mm -hmm. So these security patrols that spring from the community Mm -hmm. could have, she thought, a role. Yeah, well, what what we see happen is that people who live in the area, they end up respecting us because they know that they can come to us and they can be very open and trustworthy and, you know, we're going to help them out and, they and, you know, we're not going to turn on them. So we have people come to us and with all sorts of issues in the community and this is really from the work that we've done before holding these community barbecues. We just did this giveaway a few weeks ago. We literally invited all of the neighbors in the area, 40 neighbors on each side, like I said, and we said, you know, come to our property. We'll give you, you know, a free flowers we'll give you a shovel we'll give you a trash can uh we'll give you food and it wasn't it came after it happened after the shooting but it was planned for weeks and weeks before the shooting and it's the third or fourth of these giveaways that we've done and what that shows people is that okay we can trust these people in our in our security matters in raising our kids and a lot of people find that they come to the mosque and and they have a good time and we're not asking anything of them and and so we we build those relationships and and pays off in the long in the long run for sure and here, I think, is the broader relevance. You said earlier, the playground at the time mm-hmm. was the only one in the area. Yeah. The basketball court 
was the only one near Schiller Park. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the lack of services on the east side. It, it's definitely diff- difficult, and it comes back to what you're talking about, segregation, is that um, we have this community on the side which has been neglected for a long time by everyone. And one of the things that we are advocating for now is just for the the lots, the empty lots on the east side to get mowed because they're just not mowed. So whether it be the lots not being mowed or the sidewalks not being fixed or there's no cross lights in the school zones, you know, there's so much work that needs to be done from a community building aspect on the east side. And yes, I do think some of that comes from neglect from from the city, from whoever it is that should be not neglecting that part of Buffalo. There, def- there definitely is neglect. But why is it? I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Why is it that the east side doesn't have these services? Is it racism? I, I think it, there is systematic issues for sure. And, and um, I think they are rooted in racist policies from the past. I don't know that the people in power now are racist. I think that would be a huge step to, for me to make. I don't know them personally. But I think that they're working within a system that unfortunately disenfranchises these people that live on the east side, for sure. So how do we, generically as a community, battle systemic racism? Ooh, that's 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 a huge. I know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and we only have ten more minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> but practically speaking, you know, it's it's supporting the organizations doing the community work in that area because you know the average person listening to this isn't going to be able to run for office and dismantle the entire system. And I'm not saying that we need to burn it all down and start from scratch, but it's supporting the people that are doing the work and holding the people in power accountable. I think that's very important. You know, one of the things that came out of this most recent. Uh, mayoral race is that finally, you know, Mayor Brown came to our part of the community, Schiller Park, and said, oh, you guys need this work done? Yeah, I'll do it. But, you know, that happened because there's some political pressure put on him. So that that's the kind of pressure that really, really benefits, you know, when the pressure is put on the police, on the mayor, on the government, on all the people involved to to do the work that they should be doing in that community. It, it's not like we're asking them to do anything more than what they should already be doing in there. Mohammed Sharif is with us. He's from Jami Majid, a mosque on Genesee Street. And I, I'm reading it right off your, your sweatshirt. Jami Masjid, J-A-M-I-M-A-S-J-I-D, buffalo.com, a way people can get more information. We're talking in a general sense about some of the problems that the east side faces, but also some of the things that has uh, have sprung up around his mosque, some of the efforts that at least they maybe have been able to uh, implement in a community that truly needs services. Talk to me, uh, you, you mentioned playgrounds, you mentioned mm-hmm. basketball courts, you mentioned security patrols. I know that throughout the city, in some churches, they are starting to, to either develop or talk about developing housing. Mm-hmm. Is that an issue you see the mosque moving into? So, you know, the issue that we have right now, particular to our mosque, is that people come and go very often. So, mm. you know, people come, they'll stay there for a couple of years, we'll build a relationship with them, and then they'll leave. The good thing with that is that everyone gets a little taste of our community, and they, they take that with them wherever they go. But the negative thing is that clearly there is some destabilization in the area where people aren't able to stay for a long time and benefit for a long time and, ha- and be- have that sort of stability. 
Um, you know, our com- head of community outreach is, is an activist named Miles Carter. He's the one who runs all of this for, for the mosque. I think I've heard of him. He, he <laughs> sometimes appears in the media. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we've talked about having Miles on this program. Part, part of what we're, we're looking to do, though, is explore voices that haven't been exposed sure. as much. But, yeah, Miles is a known commodity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all I was saying is that you know, one of the things that he's really pushing within our local community is home ownership over renting. Because that's something that mm-hmm. causes – when you have a safe area – and a beautiful looking area and a house that's your own, all of a sudden crime goes down, all of a sudden, you know, wealth comes up. That, that's how you lift people out of poverty, honestly, is with stability. So one of the things that we are pushing is moving people away from renting and into home ownership, especially in the east side. And, and I do think that we would see huge benefits from something like that. The day after the shooting, I was listening to um, a memorial service held at the Macedonian Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. Miles was one of the speakers there, and he even said that. He said, um, paraphrasing here, to heck with home uh, housing projects. Mm-hmm. Home ownership is the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes all back down to what happens when you have a house that you own that is in a safe neighborhood, that is in a beautiful neighborhood because the sidewalks are good and everything and the streets are clean properly. Well, then you, that's how you start to build a community. Now you can put roots down. I want to talk more about community building, though. And, 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 and I need to be precise here. I'm not trying to pit one community against the other, Mm -hmm. but you've developed a playground. You've Mm -hmm. developed a community garden. You have developed um, uh, the basketball courts you spoke Mm -hmm. of. You have developed these security patrols. Mm -hmm. Um, You have done all these things in a part of town where services aren't there, Mm -hmm. where government support might not necessarily be there. Mm -hmm. Is it because you are a community of faith that you're able to do this, or or is there a broader lesson there? What uh, are you doing it merely because no one else has? Mm-hmm. Are you able to do it because there's some secret sauce that I don't know about? Talk about the the community building and first of all why it is you have to, and yeah. b how you're able to in a place that we are traditionally talking about as being segregated, lacking services, et cetera? Well, to be very honest, we are, everything that we have done, whether it be the playground, whether it be the security walks, the fundraiser, we only do it because it's something that we feel that our Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, would do. You know, if if he hadn't done any of those things, we also wouldn't have done those things. So everything comes from our faith. It all comes from our hope in our Lord and what we feel is the right thing to do according to our religion. So honestly, we're just practicing the tenets of our religion on a very local scale. Like I said, our, our sphere of influence is 40 neighbors on each side of the mosque. So we're just trying to practice our religion to the best of our ability in our area, and this is the result that's come from it. Okay, so that speaks to the motivation, but mm-hmm. what about the implementation in an area that has no services, how can you get stuff like this done? Yeah, it's for sure it's difficult. And a lot of it comes from the teamwork that we have at the mosque and, and the volunteers that put the effort in to get the stuff done. Having someone like Miles Carter who knows people on the ground that we can connect with directly. A lot of that, you know, it, it all comes together in order to make a very successful plan. And it's not necessarily that other communities don't have that, but I think that with the motivation of having our religion behind us, it really pushes us to do these things effectively and, and, and to do it consistently as well. All right. And again, I, I want to be absolutely precise and intentional and not pit one community against the other. I imagine you or maybe members of your mosque have faced racism too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Tell me a story. Well, I think you know, there there are many stories, but the one that kind of sticks out is uh, we had 
you know, a car on 9-11 drive into our mosque sign and, and crash into it. Um, and we never found the person who did that. I will say, however, that any acts of discrimination or racism that happen at the mosque are never from the people in the actual community. And we have always found that whenever something like that happens, the community members in our area rally around this and they come back and they tell us that we know that this isn't something we, we don't support this and we know it's not for you guys. So it's, you know, we've seen the effects of that. But we do get, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we do get acts of discrimination against us, hateful emails, messages, people that come to the mosque. But we've never had it turn into a, a consistent issue, and we've always felt that the community has had our back. How can the community at large, or the city, or even the nation, combat the systemic racism you've been talking about? It's all about supporting the people that you are local with. Um, being Starting local, and then that turns into a national movement. It's all about going to your local mosque or get or, or talking to your uh, Muslim co-worker, your Muslim classmate, whatever it is, and, and letting them know that, you know, you support them in their daily lives. And, you know, we're not looking, we're not asking for charity handouts. Just if you just let us know that, you know, we support you and we're here for you if you do need anything, which is the same approach that we took to our community that we were in. And that that helps a lot. Does there need to be beyond the systemic stuff? Does there need to be more education on interpersonal relationships? Do more white folks have to talk to people of color and, and folks who aren't white? I think it, I think it cuts both ways, honestly. I think that, yes, I think everyone just needs to talk to each other. I think Muslims need to do a, a good job of reaching out to their non-Muslim neighbors as well and talking to them and get letting them get to know each other. Uh, when I was at the University at Buffalo as a student, my organization, the Muslim Student Organization, we met with uh, a, a, a conservative organization. And one of the things that came out of that is I remember very clearly they told us we have never met a Muslim before. Everything we knew mm. was from the was from the Internet and from the news. And so just talking to the people within our communities, that builds bridges, that breaks down barriers. You're a person of faith, so I almost think I, I probably know the answer to this one. Are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? Absolutely. Um, the the changes that we have seen in our local community now uh, compared to 10 years ago is night and day. We have seen so much growth come out of it. We have seen so much. You know, right now our struggle is with the systematic issues, as you were saying, the things that are mm. deeply rooted. But when it comes to the things that are, uh, you know, the superficial, the, the things that we can control, we've seen so much benefit come out. And I only see this going in, a, in an upward direction moving forward. And my favorite last question for almost any interview is, what does Buffalo need, broadly speaking? What does Buffalo need? Yeah. What one thing, if, if you had a magic wand? If I had a magic wand, I would say Buffalo needs good investment on the east side. So, you know, definitely. We need, you know, the train station to come to the east side, and we need people to put money in the east side, and we need people to believe in the, the residents of the east side and, and have faith in them once more. All right. Anything else you'd like to add? No, nope, thank you I so much. I think we touched on a lot of it. I, oh, yeah. I, I appreciate. I'm, uh, so, I'm sorry I couldn't solve systematic <laughs> racism in ten minutes. I'll do my best next. Well, time. we'll 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 have you back for for a, a bigger discussion on that one, <laughs> uh, and and I think it is an ongoing theme through the rest of this mm -hmm. program. So it's it's something we'll touch on, even if we don't touch on it with you. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Dave. Mohammed Sharif is with us from Jami Masjid, uh, Masjid. Am I saying it yeah. right? Mm -hmm. An Islamic mosque on Genesee Street near Schiller Park. Coming up next, Bridget Jaipal Valenza talks about DEI and critical race theory with Tololope Odunse from the UB Law School. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Calderon, president and CEO of Buffalo Toronto Public Media. 
in the wake of the recent tragic racially motivated attack, which took the lives of 10 people and injured others here in Buffalo on May 14th, we remain committed to amplifying marginalized voices, reporting the news with the highest journalistic standards, and engaging our community in conversations that will move us forward. We will be here to help heal this city and come back stronger than ever. Hate has no home here in Buffalo. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to wned.org vehicles. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit wbfo.org to sign up today. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, where we examine and have real conversations about the racism and practices that led to the Tops Massacre and what can be done to fix it. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today, we're joined by Tolu Odense, lawyer, UB lecturer, former head of DEI for UB Law, and creator of the Racial Justice Toolkit for the UB Law School. Tolu, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, you're telling me that your family is, is from the East Side. Yes, so I have family um, who lives on the East Side. Um, my in-laws, um, my stepson attends school on the East, east Side. I myself grew up partially in Williamsville. My family moved all over the world <laughs> growing up. Um, so I've kind of been back and forth between the suburbs and the east side for a, a good portion of my life. When you go to the east side and then you juxtapose that to Williamsville, to the Orchard Parks, to the suburbs, what do you see? I think the first thing is visual. Um, so I sometimes joke about this, that I know I'm on the east side when I hit my first pothole um, in the street. So I think visually you see the infrastructure issues on the inside and that it's so clear that financially um, we haven't invested enough in infrastructure. So by that I mean... Um, paved roads, um, reducing blight, blighted buildings, um, and picking up uh, waste on the streets and things like that. So I think there's the visual of the infrastructure. And then you also see visually, um, you see more people of color, particularly Black people, um, who are using public transportation as opposed to vehicles. So you can actually see the people who live in the neighborhood because of their um, greater reliance on the public transport system as opposed to Williamsville, 
Um, if you're to walk outside, yeah, you'll see some folks walking, taking nice strolls, but most people are in their cars. So there's a really stark difference visually, I would say, in thinking about two things, um, just the infrastructure and then who we're seeing. We're seeing Black people on the east side and then more white people in the suburban neighborhoods. Why do you think that is? I mean, we all know that if you're taking public transportation, there are few and far between that are going from, say, the east side or in the city out to the suburbs, where, in theory, there might be jobs that are higher paying, that have, you know, better benefits, but yet the infrastructure does not allow for that exchange of of people. Why do you think that is? Um, I'll be very candid in saying that the history of segregation in Buffalo has been one of intention. So if we think about um, when Black people started to migrate from the South to Buffalo, they sought out manufacturing jobs. Um, So we saw an influx in Black people in Buffalo, um, and it was not a happy occasion for white people um, in this area. In fact, there were many tools, including legal tools, to cause segregation in the city. So there were intentional zoning laws that restricted Black people from living in particular neighborhoods. There were restrictive covenants used by white landowners where owners would write in their deeds that their houses could not be sold to non-white people. When those things became illegal, we saw the simultaneous use of redlining practices, so designating districts or areas that um, were populated by Black people and making the criteria harder for them to get loans to own property. So the history is very intentional, um, and I think it's helpful to speak candidly and honestly about that. And so once it became illegal to segregate, um, we've seen more of what is called de facto segregation. Um, So let's think even about the, the school system. In Buffalo, schools were not ordered to desegregate until, if I'm thinking correctly, 1976, so almost close to 1980. That's in recent memory. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. way past Brown versus Board of Education. Um, so there were legal tools, there were intentional tools in place, um, and also highway set up. Um, used to keep black people in one area and white people in another. And also um, when black people took over, quote unquote, the east side, we saw um, what nationally we'll call white flight. So white people exiting the city, um, setting up their own private schools to stay away from black people. So it's really an intentional history of segregation based on racism. Let's pivot a moment to... DEI. Sure. When, if you've spent any time on LinkedIn or Twitter or any social media, you're now seeing DEI popping up to, to next to people's names. Um, certainly diversity and inclusion are important, but there are some people out there who will say, why is it necessary 
if we have laws for EEO, if we have laws that tell us we need to hire a certain percentage of uh, a certain population, why is DEI necessary? So DEI um, is a tool really to kind of check people on what their biases are, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in housing, whether it's in schooling, what their biases are related to people. So I think some of the foundational teachings are that we all have biases, right? Um, It is human nature to prefer to be around people who look like you more, talk like you more, act like you more. Um, But that is, however, problematic um, when we're talking about people with decision-making power. So we've talked about housing, we've talked about employment, excluding people of color, particularly Black people. So yes, while we have um, the EEOC and other and the New York State's Human Rights Commission, um, in many cases, discrimination is very hard to prove, particularly when you don't have a smoking gun, quote unquote. So those are cases where an employer or someone making housing decisions says, I did not want to house black people. Or I, did, I did not want to hire black people. I mean, sophisticated um, employers know that that is illegal. So they're not going to say it. Um, what they'll sometimes utilize is proxy discrimination. So perhaps they will hire black people or, or hire people, but then have policies where, okay, we won't hire people who have braided hairstyles um, where we know that is a commonly that's a trait commonly associated with black people. So while the EEOC and the Human Rights Commission are important, they don't necessarily solve for this more covert discrimination. Um, and that's why it's important that we have competent DEI professionals teaching people about their biases, um, whether they are known or unknown, to prevent um, discrimination. I think people understand, you know, racism certainly, it takes different forms. Um, If someone approaches you and they're wearing a hood or they are burning a cross on a lawn, you know what that looks like. You know what that is. But this is more prevalent this covert racism is 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 scarier in that sense that you're being discriminated against and you may not really know it or understand what's going on and i think that might be why you're seeing sort of more of the the DEI officers in in places to ensure that people are treated fairly absolutely I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. We're talking to Tolu about racism. Education is one of the ways that we can be anti-racist. It's not the only way, certainly, but um, much has been made about critical race theory. Uh, And I know this is a topic that you lecture on. People find it scary. Why? I guess maybe we should take a step back for a moment. What is critical race theory? Yeah, so I think 
it's almost one in the same question. So why did people find critical race theory scary? Part of it is because they don't know what it is. Um, so to define it and kind of talk about its inception, critical race theory actually developed from critical legal studies. Um, so what critical race theory looks at is what laws are in place or what policies are in place that disparately impact people of color. Um, so you have people who study um, Latinx people, people who study Native and Indigenous people, Asian people. So the study is, yes, we have on the books um, made racism, quote-unquote, illegal. Um, but what critical race theory scholars study is, okay, when racism was, was legal, um, how did that translate or continue after things like segregation became outlawed, how, when things like employment discrimination became outlawed. Um, so it, it really ties back to what we were talking about earlier with covert racism, where, yes, we're not saying that we're being racist. However, some of our laws still disparately impact people of color. So it's really studying that and studying the impact on people of color in our society. And I and to just jump from there to touch on your second question, I think the reason people find it scary, um, and I, when I say those who find it scary, I think there are two camps. There are those who find it scary because they know what it is and they know that an understanding of critical race theory disrupts the status quo um, and brings us to an investigation of the laws and policies that are in place. So there are people who um, intentionally don't want us to discover and understand this information. Um, and those are typically people in power who have an interest in keeping a wealthy class and a working class um, because we know race is a social construct that is used to keep an underclass. Um, and then there's another camp who, like I said earlier, doesn't understand what critical race theory is. And the messaging there has been, we're teaching your kids that they're all racist. We're teaching your kids that they should hate themselves because they're white, which is not true. Um, so historically, critical race theory hasn't even been taught in K through 12 schools. Its inception has been in the law school setting. Um, and when it is taught, it is so nuanced and it is so data-based and data-driven and legally driven that it it is just ahistoric and inaccurate to categorize it the way that um, some people have. There's a lot to be said about feeling guilty about one's wh whiteness or one's privilege. And I think perhaps that informs a lot of the scare tactics around critical race theory. What do you say to people who are just, I mean, afraid? And I guess when I say people specifically, really, honestly, are, you know, to a certain extent, 
white suburbanites who are just scared that they're going to learn everything that they may have thought about other races is incorrect or wrong or... So I would say to that person who is nervous about those feelings, um, I think guilt. So I think, first of all, guilt is part of a human experience. So if you learn that a group of people has been maltreated, um, I think that in itself raises a level of guilt within anyone. Um, So I don't think it's an emotion to necessarily run from. I think we need to think about the fact that there are areas in which we all have privilege, right? Um, So race is one of them. Money can be another. Um, Even things as simple as height. Um, So there have been studies that show that taller men do better in the workplace. Um, So I think there's there's space for guilt, but it doesn't need to be magnified. Um, I think it should be productive, used as a productive tool for learning. We talked about education. Um, so I think w- one way to mitigate that feeling is to learn, okay, what exactly happened? Why do I feel feel guilty? Um, how can I turn this guilt into a productive emotion? Um, and into actionable solutions around racism. If I, as a white person, recognize that perhaps my race hasn't caused me any disadvantages in this life, um, how might I discover more about how that is not the case for other people, such as Black people, Indigenous people, Latino and Latina and Latinx people? So I don't think it's something to be scared of, Um I, I think that that guilt, um, if you feel it, it can it can be turned into a productive feeling. And I don't think black people or any people of color are even asking for white people to feel guilty. I think that what we're asking for is change and equal treatment. So I think the guilt piece of it, that's really personal. Um, but the ask from us is not for anyone to feel guilty. It is for us to have access to the full human experience as people in this country. What's next for Buffalo? What does it need? Um, So I think first, I mean, we have to acknowledge that this is a tragedy. And whenever a tragedy occurs, I think it's healthy to process it. I think um, if you're an activist or an ally, I think part of activism and allyship is rest, is taking time to reflect um, so that you can continue to work. So um, I, I want to say that piece first. But then I think for us, it's really continuing to hold our leaders accountable. Um, so I I think every time there is a shooting, not just a race-related shooting, we hear a lot about thoughts and prayers. We hear a lot of platitudes, um, and we hear a lot of kind words. But I think what we as Buffalonians need from our leaders are actionable steps. So who is on your task force 
against hate crimes? Who is on your task force for gun control? What resources are you providing for the community for mental health? What steps are we taking towards desegregating Western New York so that it's not even possible for someone to drive to Buffalo and find a solely Black grocery store in a country that touts diversity and being a melting pot? We need to hold our leaders accountable to take those actions. Um, and we as community members need to stay engaged as hard as it is. Um, I, I think that's the only way forward. Thank you, Tolu Atense, for joining us with your insights on this absolutely critical discussion. We definitely want to have you on again to continue this conversation. Also, thanks to our earlier guests, Renee Pettis-Jones and Mohammed Sharif. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>